Okay, go ahead. Well, it was just coincidence. I was just like, I got home from spring break and nobody was home. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to watch a movie. And I was like, you know, I remember that, that I came across like Don't Look Up, Netflix special. And I was like, I remember hearing some good things about the movie. So let me go watch it. And um, it turned out to be really relevant, I think, in terms of obviously our culture, you know, society, what we value, but also democracy, because they had a huge, there was a huge uh, character in the movie that they had like a president, right? And I think it was kind of, um, it was kind of in a way, I think the movie was released around the same time as Trump or COVID. Um, I don't remember for sure, but like that figure. Yeah, was, see, it's been yeah. a while since I've watched it. I'm trying to remember, but yeah, so, yeah I mean, yeah. yeah. The whole I remember it being like yeah very thinly veiled uh satire yeah <laughs> yeah 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 very thinly veiled <laughs> yes 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 and, and and exactly that's that's the point because a lot of the things that we experience and I have to pull up when this movie was released don't look up. I think it was 2020 if I had to guess or 21 2021 and it makes so much sense yeah. because they're like this whole covid thing that's happening right now is like this is movie material. Um, but it was good because it, it addressed the point that when we are facing existential crises or just any crisis altogether, do our institutions actually respond the way that they're supposed to do to get things done? And the whole argument, I would probably say, of the movement is that no, it doesn't. That um, the way our culture is headed, the way our politics are headed, we're not in a position to address, you know, global issues. So not to get too like AP literature or uh, AP language and composition um, on this podcast, but the, the meteor is a metaphor to any sort of like famine, poverty, pandemic, whatever it may be, just fill in the blank of whatever crazy crisis there is out there. That's what the meteor represents. And then everything else in the movie is exactly as it's supposed to be. Um, and it's like, how much of that is due to like our political structure? Like is democracy to blame um, for a failure of, you can say, is it like did, did democracies fail um, during the pandemic? Like did, democracy in this movie fail um fail um or is that just natural human behavior that greed lust um uh, what's it, what's it called wiggish we, we just learned about this in our uh, uh, like you call it our history class at osu uh, john davis teaches it um being wiggish is kind of like being like elon musk like saying technology is the way that we improve society and Technology is the solution to all of mankind's problems. Like referring to the political party? Yeah, the Whig, yeah, the, the, the Whig party. Um, apparently, that's kind of one of their big things. I've never heard that used as an adjective. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I didn't either. Um, and he said, he asked everyone in the class, like, who's the modern day Whig like, in our society? Mm. We all thought no one answered. And he's like, Elon Musk, guys. Like, Elon Musk is this guy who's like, you know, we're going to go to Mars, we're going to build rocket ships, we're going to build, you know, electric cars. This is how we pull, you know, humans from their, uh, 
beastly or you know untamed nature it's it's through technology that we become more humane and civilized um and this movie don't look up has a figure in that he they have this the third richest person in human history that's what they called him like he's like a jeff bezos guy and you know he's the one who's instead of the scientists instead of the government it's this technocrat who comes and supposedly coming up with a solution to save the day if i can interject i think that was yeah. definitely bill gates <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah that would be he was that's at a, least my interpretation <laughs> son, that guy was so weird and he's like oh everything's fine and super soft-spoken but like really cynical and menacing um yeah and yeah anyway i mean i was just like um the whole movie was just like wow like we came out of a pandemic and it's weird because i feel like everything is kind of resuming back to the way it was but a lot of things are are happening um but more or less you know everyone is still a consumer everyone still has to wake up for their job everyone has, still has to put gas in their tank um and like the hype like the the big excitement around, you know, like constantly flashing, scaring people to death with like COVID news and, you know, flashing people, scaring people with like Trump on, on the TV all the time. Like that has like faded away and it's just like, what the hell happened? Right. And, um, yeah. And it, it just like, we're still like, you know, very consumeristic materialistic society. And, um, like what, what are we doing or dreaming of for the future? Like where's, where's the vision, um, of like, what, what should our future be? What should our democracy look like? And it's weird. Cause like, I'm at OSU and like, we're, we're a very liberal, I would say a very liberal campus and the future is always like, okay, diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, there's always that conversation. That's, that's like the main social activism, um, there was one student, architecture student, probably he dropped like a flyer or a pamphlet on my desk and he was dropping on a few kids' desks, but he was like complaining about the school and saying like, oh, the students and the professors don't get along. And, you know, for me, I, I thought it was kind of an annoying pamphlet because I was like, you have incredibly educated professors, your school has a library, you have multiple libraries actually on OSU's campus, you have, you have you have the internet, you have access to a laser laser printer, you have access to all sorts of great machines. Um, like you, you are surrounded by things that I, like 98% of the world doesn't have, right? For you to, like you're getting a world-class education and you know, this person's dropping a flyer and saying, I'm not getting a world-class education. Uh, Knowlton, OSU's architecture school sucks. That's, that's pretty much what the message of the thing was and this is like the extent of the activism that I'm seeing at OSU's campus, right? Um, and I don't know. I, I feel like there could be more. There could be a greater discussion in terms of what's what should what we should be doing as a society. And it's like you don't really get a clear answer. Like we have like symposiums. You you have some conversations. Um, some people are talking about the the future for our discipline. And more broadly, our society is, okay, how do we make urban spaces more equitable? How do we use, you know, federal state funding, uh, city funding um, to support people who are um, not impoverished, but people who are downtrodden, um, which, which is a good idea. 
But to contrast that, I would say probably with like the past 200 years or 300 years of American history, where it's like you had like this idea of like manifest destiny, we're moving across the West, we're exploring, um, we're exploring these amazing natural geographic landscapes. Uh, we're building things. We have a we have a train. We're building train tracks across our country. Um, our democracy is like bringing people where we have immigrants flowing in. Um, they're all trying to start their communities. They're all trying to start their lives away from Europe. Um, and it's like, where's the narrative? And that's kind of where I, I feel like I'm at right now when we talk about like democracies. Like, where's where's the narrative? And I think this book that we're reading. The generations of democracy is trying to capture that narrative and it's the whole point is like okay where we went through a little bit of a slump now it's time to revive our democracy um but what does that exactly tangibly look like what is that motivating thing that brings us all together and says like these are the things that unite us these are the things that we have to revive you know as one people as as one group as one nation as one language as one society yeah I mean, in terms of a vision or future vision, I think looking back, I mean, you referenced manifest destiny and pushing westwards and things like that. Um, you could say, what is the frontier today? And you know, maybe once we reached those like physical frontiers, I don't know, we might have turned inward on ourselves and started doing more introspection. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great way to put it. Um, yeah, I think I that's think also why you see other people that want to push forward space exploration or something like that in order to provide a new frontier, mm-hmm. something new that we can conquer and achieve. It's really cool. You know, there's one thing that you know we learned in our making meaning class with John Davis, and I, I love the class. You know. Um, and anyone who doesn't know who John Davis is, I highly recommend to like follow their Twitter, um, read, read his work. Um, really, really brilliant guy. And I'm sure he's not alone. Like he's the only person who writes about these topics, but, um, he brought to our attention in our class, this like painting that you would find it's, it's a Budweiser advertisement. Like the border says Budweiser, but the painting is, um, is a scene of like, it's called Custer's last stand. Um, yeah, Clay looking up right away. It, yeah. yeah, Custer's Last Stand. Um, it, it's an event in, in American history, but there's a painting of it. So like, put Custer's Last Stand, Budweiser. It has this Got amazing, it. amazing photo of, um, I can't remember if it's the 128th or 100th Cavalry, whatever, um, and Custer, their leader, um, out in the open where he's, they're fighting Native Americans, and you see the Native Americans and the cavalry kind of going at it. And um, it shows Custer kind of standing there in the in, in the middle, you know, fighting off Native Americans. And this scene is supposed to capture like the American spirit or the American attitude that you you are in a wild, brutal environment, and it's man versus man versus wild, right? That this is this is what it means to be an American. Um, and. Uh, I think there's something attractive, I think, for our society. <laughs> Google's letting you know what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think that's something that is, is in, inherent to our virtues and our, and our purpose is to find what is the next big problem, right, and how do we work together to tackle it. 
um, or achieve um, achieve something great. Um, I think that's like all. That's not all. I mean, there's definitely other sides to American history that are, that are interesting. Um, but I, I think that's one of the things that really stands out um, about American society or, or American society. Like you can't look at the moon landing. You can't look at just the development of train tracks. You can't look at um, even things like smartphones. Um, all these things that are created and developed. Um, like th those things kind of really stand out. And I think any civilization, like if you look at the wheel, for example, like I'm not sure which civilization, maybe the Babylonians, they invented the wheel, right? But for us, those are things that we highlight. If you go to Disney World and there's a whole like exhibit, like a whole place in Disney World that just talks about all of these like inventions. And that's like something that like occupied Walt Disney's mind. And he was obsessed about that. It's like all these historic moments, all these technological moments are historic. And that's part of the American narrative. And that's a story that we want to tell about ourselves as Americans. Um, and I think there's a choice. We can either continue down that track and start to continue to think about new technologies that are going to revolutionize the world. Um, or maybe there's a different story that America wants to tell itself. But I, find, I personally find the, te the technology one to be interesting. Um, but that's Yeah, I think a part of the American story has always been the frontier and individualism and you know, even just moving from the old world, for lack of a better terms, mm -hmm. to America, I think most of those people were looking for something different. They're leaving behind their cultures and any established identities and pushing out into the unknown. Um, and so, yeah, now that the physical frontiers have kind of been conquered, I would say tech is probably the place that we've started to push ourselves into. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, did you get a, did you get a look at that uh, that photo with? Yeah, uh, I've been looking at it. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> if you if you're gonna hang it on the wall, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're gonna man cave, make sure to hang up Custer's last stand. Yeah. yeah, I'll put it right next to my Alamo picture. Oh, nice. Yeah. No, I I don't actually. Oh, you don't. Know, <laughs> I just mean it. My wall of last stand photos. Um, so funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I definitely think it's like everything now is about Silicon, right? Like any, any big major geopolitical, you know, tensions that are happening in the world, it's where the competition's shifting towards Silicon. Um, oil was kind of the big thing that was obsessed about, but that's still relevant or important, but I, it's it seems to be waning in terms of like public attention yeah we'll see i think oil still has a pretty big impact and to play for at least the time being yeah until maybe we actually figure out solar nuclear um i mean even with this russia ukraine conflict i think oil is playing a pretty large role but definitely yeah, I mean, our relationship with, with China, um, yeah, like you were saying, I think a lot of that's going to come down to, I think right now we're decoupling our manufacturing and trying to onshore a lot of it. And yeah, a lot of it has to do with chips. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That's another another thing that's come out of COVID. We'll see if it's if it's good or bad, you know. But all those supply chain issues, I think really... 
kind of put an onus on uh, where our supply is really coming from. And is it a matter of national security? So, yeah. 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 I mean, you could see it's, it's a good thing for countries to be self-reliant, but you know, in some ways having such a entangled economy with China also keeps the peace. Mm-hmm. 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 And yeah. I don't like <laughs> a lot of aggressive posturing going on uh, in the world right now. Well, it's interesting. So, you, I'm, I'm not sure if you noticed the, the broker or not the broker, the peace um, diplomatic um peace brokerage or something um, uh, between Iran and Saudi, they, it seems um, China seemed to have worked. Yeah. China brokered it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. China's also been, uh, you know, trying to negotiate peace and with Ukraine and Russia too. Mm. So it's interesting that they're playing the role that you typically see the United States playing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. It's hard to evaluate uh, motivations, I guess, but I don't know. I don't know that you can be completely cynical with that. Yeah, I, I, I think everyone's pretty quiet about the whole, the whole thing. Um, I think we're kind of just like waiting and seeing, like what's, you know, <laughs> where are they up to? Maybe they're just, you know, they're, they're just playing the game, and there isn't like kind of a long term thing. But I don't know. <laughs> I really, I'm really not sure. I don't have a whole lot to say about that. So I read a really interesting paper. I guess it's a transcription of a, a lecture um, given in, I think, 1890s. And it was spoken before a fraternity at Yale in the 1890s. And it, this guy is kind of... Uh, He's, he's sort of summarizing the effects of the Spanish-American War. And mm-hmm. it's called The Conquest of the United States by Spain. And the United States won that war. And the Spanish ceded a lot of territory to the United States. But he's saying that basically through this war, despite the United States winning materially, they sort of lost philosophically and then they now inherited um, the imperialism of the Spanish. So now they inherited colonies and having to take care of colonies and having that spirit of imperialism versus um, basically the, the mindset of freedom that they once had. It's a really interesting read. Who's the author? William William J or William G Sumner. I think it's William George Sumner. Yeah. Oh, William Graham Sumner, sorry. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, to think of you know, even when you're in combat with another nation, how much of their uh, philosophy can rub off on you. Yeah. Yeah. It's Do you hear that in the background or Yeah, old? it's <laughs> Um Yeah, I, I think definitely. Um I think a lot of times people they want to resolve their 
resolve a fight by seeing if the person would be interested in joining their way of life or, you know, adopting their values and purposes. But like you said, when there is a disagreement or the wills of two societies do clash, um, they do kind of develop a cultural exchange that is just inevitable. Um, like I know in Egypt, like the French, they came all the way to Egypt and some of them decided to stay. So you have some people in Egypt who are identify as Egyptians, but clearly, you know, the blue eyes or blonde hair, you're like, yeah, <laughs> you see me, you might have a little bit of French. In you. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And I think he's saying this is beyond the cultural exchange of, you know, inheriting Spanish territories or something like that. He's saying, I don't know. There's always been a debate in uh, the United States on what is our role in the world? What's our role with foreign policy? So a lot of the founding fathers were kind of wanted to be exclusionary and just focus on the United States. And then, but, you know, I think throughout American history, we've become much more involved in foreign affairs and sort of kind of played the, the role of, the world police and major superpower for a while. Yeah. It's been 200. How, how old is the United States? Let's run that number. 1776, 260. 260. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's not very long in the grand scheme of things, but I'd say it didn't really emerge as a, superpower in the world until i don't know post-world war one maybe yeah yeah i i think someone on twitter kind of mentioned something interesting about how um even if the united states were to collapse like the u.s dollar would still have like a very it would still be in circulation right like it would, for decades if not for you know several decades Potentially. that it would still be in circulation because it's just you know, so many things are in motion. So many things are, um, it's hard to like put a halt to that or, or change that direction very easily. But it's hard to say. And it, it's, it's weird too. I mean, even when you're looking at the parties, it's just like, who is the leadership of American society right now? I think that's a question that doesn't seem to have a clear answer. Um, you have people who are running for office and people are, will continue, I think, running for office in these different like municipalities. But Who's the face or what's the identity that represents American values and American beliefs, right? It's no longer just like people just don't want a, a guy who just wears jeans and a, you know, uh, what's it called? Button-up shirt kind of look, you know? Yeah. Kind of that George Bush cowboy look, you know? Um, is, it, is, it, is it the Eastern kind of elite, you know, from Massachusetts or um, New York or whatever, someone who wears a business suit? somebody from the West coast, um, someone from the Midwest, like what, what does that figure look like? Um, you know, Obama wasn't too long ago in terms of just like having your first black, first black president. Um, mm -hmm. you know, but I don't think Biden's approval ratings are particularly like people are getting really excited about, um, you know, Trump, he, he's making a reemergence in the news as well, but, um, I'm not sure people are going yeah. like to block the guy so he doesn't... No, I know. I hope we don't tee up 
I hope we don't tee up Biden versus Trump too. That's one rematch we can afford to skip probably. But I mean, yeah, sell the pay-per-view tickets now. But um, I mean, I think he's act. I mean, he's he's really good with media, right? So yeah, he's been he's been making some pretty prudent moves. I mean, he showed up in Ohio after the train crash and all that when nobody else did. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, that kind of goes, yeah, yeah, that kind of goes back to this, that Spanish thing, the, I think the guy refers to it as event adventurism, basically, where, you know, a group of people kind of stir up a conflict because they can make some money off of it when potentially a lot of Americans don't want to be involved. Um, I don't know. And so I think that Trump kind of does have that appeal of, I mean, what his major slogan is like America first, I guess. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's one thing, like that's where he kind of does appeal to, I guess the average American or something sort of equivalent to that. He he said something um, recently that I thought was very interesting and like it correlated with a lot of things that I was studying in class. Um, he was saying that we have to reopen the frontier. He said something along the lines that a small percentage of America is like occupied, that like the majority of our population lives in cities. So he was rolling out the idea that we have to open up 10 new cities, right? Uh, thought, it's a very, very interesting idea. It's a very interesting concept. But I think that kind of, I'm not sure if that's the right move or that's what we should be doing, but that kind of idea does you know, does offer some stimulation, right? Because I feel like most of what we hear all the time is like, and you need to do both, right? I'm not trying to sound like, you know, cynical or bad guy and saying like, we, we, we need to help our fellow Americans. We have to do, you know, X, Y, and Z, um, healthcare, uh, education, all these things that are, you know, very, very important. Um, but kind of that, that cool, like idea, um, that, that thing that's exciting, like, you know, I think maybe for some time, like catching Bin Laden was like kind of like the thing, right? We got to catch this. Yeah. So well, I mean, so that's okay. Maybe yeah. that's the thing I'm driving at is like, why are we constantly whipping up something outside of ourselves to that grabs our attention? You know what I mean? Because no one likes to focus. Oh, you have on some themselves. terrorist. You have some war. You have a pandemic or something versus like trying to build and fix problems at home in your backyard. Yeah. No, I'm not yeah, naive yeah. enough to say like, oh, we should never be involved in foreign affairs or like we don't need to keep an eye on conflicts that are going yeah. on abroad. Obviously, yeah, we need to pay attention to that some, but you know what I mean? Like, why is that what's driving the headline? Or maybe that's exactly it. That's what drives headlines. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's sexier than like just doing the work to fix things here. I think there's a simple answer to that. I, I think it's just no one likes to talk about them. I mean, we do like to talk about ourselves, but no one likes to talk about the things that we're not good at or the things that we're struggling with. We're always just looking out. What about this? What about that? Like, there's a really funny uh, Dave Chappelle skit where it shows Dave Chappelle like acting as the president of the United States. He's like, "Why does everyone keep on talking about the war? Why is everyone talking about this?" And it's like, he's like, "You know what we're gonna talk about? We're gonna talk about." Mars, M A R S. I there. I said it. We're going to Mars, right? And and you're absolutely right. Um, 
I, I think, I think that's part of like the problem with how our system works and how just like people's psychology here in America works. We're looking for the new iPhone. We're looking for the new X fill in the blank. Um, and you know, a shrewd president's going to play on those sentiments uh, pretty easily. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a question of whether or not like Americans will stop falling for that every single time and start asking for the things that they really need and you know get involved in the system that's built for them um, and organize to make those demands. But yeah, I just I want to read a passage from this. Uh, yeah, please from this lecture and then so. I guess a disclaimer, yeah, this is from the 1800s, so the vocab is a little bit different, but I think it's, like, very prescient to right now. Like, it sounds like if you just updated the vocab, it's something somebody could write today, and it would be, it would be spot on. But it says, The war with Spain was precipitated upon us headlong without reflection or deliberation, and without any due formulation of public opinion. Whenever a voice was raised in behalf of deliberation and the recognized maxims of statesmanship, it was howled down in a storm of vituperation and cant. Everything was done to make us throw away sobriety of thought and calmness of judgment and to inflate all expressions with sensational epithets and turgid phrases. It cannot be denied that everything in regard to the war has been treated in an exalted strain of sentiment and rhetoric very unfavorable to the truth. At present, the whole periodical press of the country seems to be occupied in tickling the national vanity to the utmost by representations about the war, which are extravagant and fantastic. There will be a penalty to be paid for all of this. Nervous and sensational newspapers are just as corruption, just as corrupting, especially to young people as nervous and sensational novels. The habit of expecting that all mental pabulum shall be highly spiced in the corresponding loathing for whatever is soberly truthful, um, undermines character as much as any other vice. Patriotism is being prostituted into a nervous intoxication, which is fatal to an apprehension of truth. It builds around us a fool's paradise, and it will lead us into errors about our position and relations, just like those which have been, which we have been ridiculing in the case of Spain. It's really interesting. <laughs> I like that. I like that word, fool's paradise. Yeah. <laughs> No, that, yeah, obviously yeah. different mediums, but it's interesting that they had this guy at least sees a similar relationship to mm -hmm. the national media as a lot of people would claim today. Have you um have you seen any of like the World One World War One uh, footage where they start coloring it? So they they show World War One reels, yeah, and they color the people, and you're like. Like, holy smokes, these are dudes just like us. Like, you know, 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds. Um, yeah. You know, riding around on tanks and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that was only 120 years ago, but it's, yeah, it seems like nothing has changed. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, All right, should we give this yeah. outline a shape? Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> 30 minutes in. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're in the same right. man. Let's take a home. Hard transition. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with this point that says, all the way back to Athenian democracy, having equal political participation was criticized by the likes of Plato, Thucydides, and Aristophanes. 
Um, critique of a citizen's ability to learn the art of politics and deliberation when the political subject is not an individual, but a collective. Um, yeah, so basically he's outlining a distrust in popular elections and saying that basically from the beginning of democracy, thinkers have always been a little bit suspicious of uh, truly popular elections. Yeah, I think that's something important to to highlight that Plato, a lot of these Greek philosophers, they they had a very unique understanding. Like the word politics, like comes from polis, which is like about cities. Like how do you govern the city? Um, and as it says here, when the political subject is not an individual but a collective, that. Um, that they're when they're talking about the art of politics, I'm I'm curious if they're simply talking about the conversations that happen in the political environment. Like if you're sitting in a Senate and you know you're, just, think, you're discussing policies, or go ahead. Yeah, so I think they they actually said no, they weren't afraid of all people being able to voice, but the actual direct voting is what they called into question. Mm. So some of the arguments were that not all citizens have an equal aptitude for politics. Um, yeah, that was basically the main one. That, that's the main <laughs> that not everyone, here. yeah. And well, sort of that the opinion of crowds can be swayed through, I don't know, sort of fanatical ways. It's, it's, it's interesting because... It's interesting because, and in, and in you know, I, I connect this back to some of our classes. We we talked about emergent game theory, right? And how emergent game theory it discusses when does something or a system become interesting enough that we feel engaged and a part of it, and it becomes part of our psyche. Um, mm -hmm. And there's there's kind of like the spectrum that the person laid out, and he's saying when something is complex, that's like the sweet spot in the spectrum. If it goes too far right, then it becomes chaotic. And if it becomes too far left, then it just becomes too bland and, you know, unsophisticated. And I think that's always the question here. Like when we're talking about our politics, we're talking about like, where is that sweet spot where you are bringing in people who are engaged, sincere and active contributors to the system um, or quote unquote, the game. Um mm -hmm without it kind of just devolving into just being total chaos where it's just like anarchy and where it's not just being like, well, there's only like three or four people who are truly living life and making all these big decisions for the rest of us. Um, right. So this is, so then he puts forward that Aristotle, he accepted that not everyone that basically the popular vote would be dangerous. And then what he put forward was ways to bridle the demos. So how to sort of control the crowd, um, not in the sense of a dictatorship or something, mm -hmm. but to keep it from violent swings back and forth. And then it looks like he formulated um, some sort of iteration of mixed constitutional government. So having, you know, multiple different, I guess we see it here as Congress, uh, 
the president, like multiple different levels of power that can balance each other. Right. Right. Um, it was funny the 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 goodwill hunting. They they mentioned the book by Noam Chomsky, the manufacturing consent, and you know um, it's funny. <laughs> was in goodwill hunting? What part of goodwill hunting was that in? I think when he sees the shrink, when he sees uh, Robin Williams, I think for the first time. Yeah. And you know he's just spitting out books and whatever. Um, but it's funny, like how we talk about like the media as being like the the fourth branch of the government. Um, I think that's the whole point of this whole. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's the whole point. I haven't read Manufacturing Consent, but just by looking at the title, it's the whole idea is like how do you build this idea of making people believe in certain things? How do you program people to believe a certain way? And not not to go yeah. on a too long of a tangent, but there's this fear about artificial intelligence, like people talking about Chat GPT, that Chat GPT is like this incredible liberal artificial intelligence. Which is really funny to think about because all the responses that you that you get from ChatGPT are predominantly going to be leaning in a certain way. Like the policies of the founders of ChatGPT, they think a certain way, right? So the constraints yeah. of the on ChatGPT are also going to be thinking a certain way. So you have all of these kids who are cheating on their papers using ChatGPT to submit their assignments. They're all going to be coming up with these like very liberal opinions. No one's going to be coming up with an original thought in terms of like, I don't know, the war in Russia and Ukraine or like what they think of Mark Twain or whatever, right? Everyone's just going to be regurgitating a certain narrative um, and that narrative becomes controlled um, and becomes manufactured, kind of how that book was was suggesting. Um, So... And there's all this whole idea of like, you know, we need a more educated populace. Like this is the way that you make good citizens is through education by giving them all the tools and the resources that they need. But what happens when the tools and resources that you give people begins to skew the way that they think? You know, like it's, it's almost turning into a catch-22 at that point. Um, are we just creating this little vicious circle? Um, and we're not actually becoming individuals. We're, I don't know we're not liberating ourselves from anything. We're just tying ourselves further down and down into a cycle or a system that eventually will become impossible to break out of. So I don't know. I mean, like I'm obviously I'm, I'm, I'm taking what we're talking about here, like a statement that was made, you know, a millennia ago, yeah, two millennia ago and like superimposing it into our world here today. But um, I think that it raises. No, that's a scary version, scary vision. Um, But I think that that's repeated itself multiple times throughout history. And I think that's almost like one of the main fears of the, of the founding fathers is like, how do you combat a tyranny of the majority sort of how, how do you allow free thinkers and just, I mean, anybody that doesn't agree with common consensus, how do you allow them some, freedom to participate you know without giving them free reign to impose themselves on others but you know how do you keep them from being caught up in an inquisition or locked away forever something like that Mm -hmm. i think um 
I remember Jack, he recommended me um, a book. It's, um, I forgot his first name, but it's um, called After Virtue um, by Al Tair, I think. McIntyre. McIntyre, yeah. And I think the whole like thesis of his book is that um, it's all about communities. It's about creating little groups of people who know each other very well and coming back to that as being the thing that strengthens society. Um, yeah. Cause, cause, I think some of that is good. Um, but in some ways I don't see, I don't necessarily see that as being the way forward. I think that, that some of that is kind of like rose colored glasses on the, the ways of organizing in the past, but. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even if you're, you're going to break it down even further, like skip communities come down to like the family level, like, parents their kids they're passing on they're they want to be in control of you know passing on their knowledge and their wisdom you know Mm -hmm. and passing it off you know to their kids and you know who's going to care for a kid more than parents right um and i think there's something problematic about our society where we think that the state knows better than parents right That, that a parent is sometimes not all the time incapable of you know raising their kid and you know the state has to take custody of the kid or whatever um but even for the parents who do still have custody over their kid how much does the state or school system or more broadly society wants to intervene in terms of the upbringing and the education of that child uh, to be a certain way you know so yeah i agree with you there um yeah and let me get back to this yeah sorry go ahead go ahead go ahead (laughs) let me get back to this book so then next notes i have it's interesting how this book really framed it um so they say courts are always behind the curve of the people they're saying that the people are always more progressive than the courts which in my opinion that is a feature not a bug um we have this quote by John Adams. It is not the rule of men, but rule of laws and institutions that secures democracy. So again, that's sort of is anti demos or anti populism. But mm-hmm. then the book has this take, this is a quote from it. It is time to relinquish the exhausted project of taming the demos. And then they basically lay out that we need to mobilize the demos to participate beyond voting to fight back against ugly democracy. Mm. And is this the same ugly, ugly democracy that they talk about in our book? The, yeah, yeah, this is from the book. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. These are direct like outlines of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they use that frequently. They're, they're making references to a lot of different, places in the world where supposedly there's a democracy but it's an ugly democracy yeah and they're sort it seems like their ugly democracy for lack of a better term was like donald trump wave of whatever you want to categorize him as but that that wave and i mean they sort of cited it as oh there was a russian interference and um the electoral college is not as democratic as it should be. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, um, I, I I remember their references to um, Turkey and Ortegon, um talking about him and how they categorized him as a ugly democracy. And I, I'm not sure if they included Iran in there as well. Um, I can't remember all the other countries that they referenced. Um, yeah, I think Orban and Hungary. Okay. Okay. It's time to relinquish the exhaustive project of taming the demos. I mean, I think so. I just, I think there's a fine line to be drawn between empowering people's voices, I guess, and letting. I don't know. I, I don't think that what anybody wants is a fully a fully democratic electoral process, meaning like one vote equals one vote for a president and we're voting on just presidents or we're voting on issues federally, something like that. I don't think, even though it sounds like it's a very good concept, I don't think in actuality that it would play out very well for us. Mm-hmm. Why, do, why do you say it wouldn't play out well for us if it became that way? I think that this the system of representation is built for a particular reason. And I think that it's built to sort of buffer drastic changes in public opinion. I mean, especially imagine like right now, what, I mean, America is voting like 50, 50. They're on like a knife's edge between going Mm-hmm. either way so i mean just imagine every four years we already have a drastic swing but imagine it being more drastic so then the stability comes into play where people aren't voting on everything that there's certain things that just kind of stay you know stagnant or stable for a little bit yeah i think that that's i mean it's frustrating that there's sort of a conservative element. And I don't mean that in the sense of like Republican or right leaning or something. I mean, conservative in the sense of it's difficult to change. Um, I think it can be frustrating that there's a conservative element to how politics are run in the U S but I think that in some ways that it's kind of helpful. Mm -hmm. It's like anything. I mean, you don't, you want to have a little, you want to have some brakes on your car. I yeah. mean, it's it's fun to drive a hundred sometimes, but if you're driving a hundred and changing direction every time, yeah, you know, I, I you're I gonna see, get out of control. No, no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you there. I think um, I think it's especially it's exciting for I think for young people when young people they hear about change and you know marching to this brave new future. But I think it's very tiring for people who are older, um, and you know, they're still part of our society, like the, not the elderly, but like people who are like in their thirties and forties, they've just, you know, they've established themselves or settling in their job, they're settling into their homes. Um, and all of a sudden they have to like educate themselves about new movements, learning about what, what does a new generation care about because they need to hire that generation into their workforce. Um, they, they got to pay attention to like, what do these changes mean in their society and mean for their company or their lives and 
um, the, the children that they're even growing up. Um, so I, I, I agree with you there. There, there is some, that, that speed puts pressure on, on the older generation, I think in particular. Um, but even, I think, even I guess I like, don't, I don't necessarily mean it like that. I don't mean okay. like fettering progress. I mean like putting a damp on like swinging public opinion. Yeah. Um, no, I think we should sort of take some of the gloves off in some ways and progress faster. But, um, and like, I don't think that, I don't think it's necessarily doing us a lot of good that we have 70 and 80 year olds that have been incumbents forever that are just sitting in, in Congress necessarily. I don't think that helps us out a lot either. I think that the young people should be active and, this system um well so yeah i'm not really trying to no go ahead and i was gonna say well what do you think the 80 year olds are gonna do you're gonna put them in a nursing home or you know just bother their families all day we gotta do something i'm kidding yeah i think there's a lot of (laughs) no there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from those people but i you have to incentivize the younger generations as well i mean we can't just have 70-year-old CEOs and congressmen that are taking up all the seats and our organizations and stuff, you know? Yeah. I don't know. They just don't have, not all of them. Some of them have a lot of fire, but some of them probably need a little bit more fire or need Mm -hmm. a fresh opinion. I think it's also training, you know, building up the next generation in terms of knowing how how to lead, right? It's, it, you know, not to bring up goodwill hunting again, but, you know, you have the shrink and you have this, like, you know, this genius. They're both from the same neighborhood. One's older than the other. Yeah. And he's like, experienced things like he experienced his wife passing away. Right. Um, and young people, they have to grow and live through those experiences. Um, and like, obviously on a personal level, but also on a leadership level, if you don't give those opportunities to your next generation, give them a shot and give them a chance, they'll never, they're, they're going to never know. They're never going to know what it, what it means to experience loss, like in term on a war level experience, stress yeah. of the economy, global politics. Um, those, those are intense situations and you know, you got to get them started somehow. So. I mean, think of how fast the, world is changing i mean think about even in world war one how many maybe this example will land but think about how fast the technology in that war changed think about how many of the upper brass and those militaries were trained on a totally different style of warfare oh yeah and had to adapt to trenches and gas and tanks and things like this like i think there was such a learning curve there and I mean, maybe it would have hit anybody by surprise, but maybe if you had some people, maybe if you had, what I'm saying is I think the younger generation can adapt faster to changes in technology or something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we just generally have, I think, um, more of a bandwidth to absorb and sponge up new things in general. Like, it's funny, like, you can see like in my class and my cohort, you have people who are really young, like they're still in their, you know, mid twenties, early twenties. And you have other people who've they're switching careers and they're doing something new. They're coming to this program. 
and you just see the difference in terms of like how much quicker we are with just using the computer, right? So adopting a technology when you're born and raised into it is very different than like learning it as you're getting older. It's like it reminds right. me of like the Congress when they're asking Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg's like, yeah, that's perfect example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Zuckerberg is trying to explain to them like how Facebook works, and they're like, right, looking off of their papers and writing with a pen and whatever. Um, it's just funny, and it's even weird. Like even how like young people are running for office. I have, um, I just got to know this uh, young guy running for office in Houston, um, and like you know he's texting people, he's hitting people up. You know he's got his Instagram role in right. Like that's this is a completely new way of running for office that was unknown and unheard of you know 100 200 years ago like founding fathers would have never imagined or predicted this tool instagram being the way that people come into office um, right and it's cool but it's also scary in, in some ways that like is that what's going to happen it's just like social media influencers are going to be the people that are going to be running our cities like is that's how it's, is this how it's going to work um yes <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's mind bending, but like give it, give it a few more years. And that's probably what's going to be happening for everybody. Um, you know? Yeah. I think yeah. I had a tweet or something, something like you thought like having a reality TV star was bad as a president. Wait till it's a TikTok influencer, you know, Jake Paul or Logan Paul. Yeah. It's like you thought Trump being a TV star was bad. Yeah. Wait till the Paul presidency, yeah. but their again, drinks are maybe... pretty good. <laughs> I've tried them. The prime, I, don't know, I haven't tried. <laughs> hey, it's it, it's not bad, and I'm like, hey, you know, good for him. Like, I like it's expensive. I'm probably not gonna go get another one, but you know, for someone to just be out of nothing, go from YouTube to just starting a business, and it's like there in your gas station, like, like, yeah, who, who knows, like. Like that's just hard no, I have respect. Yeah. Yeah. I have respect for those guys. I'm not saying yeah. like no YouTube influencer would ever be yeah. a good president. I'm sure yeah. they, there will be one that. Could be. <laughs> but it's just like yeah. a funny, it's a funny thought experiment. It is. It is really funny, and it's and it's unorthodox, but um. But no, I mean, yeah. okay, so these are more these are more reasons why I don't necessarily think direct democracy would work very well. Is just think how quickly things fall in and out of fashion with the majority of people. Mm -hmm. I mean. It'd be very difficult. And how would you do it? I mean, it's one thing to put it in a book like, yeah, like the people need to have more direct democracy and need to be making more decisions and stuff because they feel disenfranchised. And I think that's fine. You should want people to feel like their voice is important and like they can have an effect. But then I don't really see anywhere where they like laid out necessarily how to do it. I mean, it says beyond voting. So what does that mean? Taking to the streets or something? I think that like sometimes that has positive consequences, but I don't know that it always does. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say. It's everything yeah. now and it's so... I don't like necessarily like this aspect of it, but everything is so entrenched and like baked in that it will be very difficult to change things. So unfortunately it's just going to take like a little bit of progress, a little bit of progress. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of just got to be the way it's going to go. I don't know. Yeah. 
the structure of democratic degenerations and the imperative direct action. Democracies forced to contend, contend with consequences of expanding capitalism over the last 200 years, taming class struggle, generalized feeling of diminished political efficacy and agency among the vast majority of citizens, especially non-elites. All non-nomadic communities are marked by and contend with an enduring conflict between the elite and non-elite. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was a crazy statement. It sounds a little Marxist, if I'm not mistaken, right? <laughs> I think it's incredibly, yes. Okay, yeah. Um, so let's, let's, let's break it down. Like, non-elites and elites, right? From I understand how Marxism works, you have, like, the superstructure, which is, I guess, where the elites stand. And then you have the base, which is like where the non-elites are, right? So non-elites are focused on agriculture. They're focused on industry. They're focused on like all these, like the means of production. And the elites are like focused on like painting and like complex math. And I don't know what other like. Making money. Sport. Yeah. Making money. Putting down the non-elites. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, I yeah. I think a little bit of that goes on. I, he says basically there's an equitable distribution of resources, so there's always going to be a class struggle is what he says. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that's a pretty cynical view of the world. I think that, right. yes, some class struggle goes on, but that's not – I guess that's not like the – the axis that I view the world through. That's not the lens that I no. interpret everything that goes on in the world through. No, no. And I think the, the biggest criticism in that kind of narrative is saying that that's all humans are focused on, that this enduring conflict is just humans constantly competing over resources. It kind of strips away the humanity that's behind humans, that yeah. the, the strong want to protect the weak, the weak they work together. Like the moral virtue of a human being is completely absent in those kinds of statements that there, there isn't this collaboration. There isn't this um, consent. There isn't this contentment in terms of what part of that ladder that we're born into. Um, so I, th I think it's, it's a, it's a gross simplification. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's definitely that component that happens. Like there are, labor unions there are there are situations where people are being abused um you know they're essentially like those things do happen um and we can address those how do you yeah you know i would like to ask how does one define elite and non-elite where where can you draw that line i i've you know heard, I mean like i mean yeah. you inherit x amount of money or something like that no 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 I, you know what I'm heard, saying? I've heard the argument that what really distinguishes someone an elite from a non-elite is an elite person is someone who cares about our future, someone who's genuinely concerned um, and draws a bigger circle around themselves. And I've always liked that def definition. For example, there's people who go to Harvard, Ivy League schools. They come from tons of wealth, tons of money. Um, they went through private schools, through high school and all of that, um, boarding schools. But they come to Ivy League schools and you see that they're just there because they have wealth. Their parents are donors, right? And it's just part of the social status that these families are trying to uphold, that they're elite. But these kids, they have, they, 
they zero cares about the world and the people around them. They, they, they actually, in there's a really cool article um, that talks about this is that a lot of these kids who go to the Ivy League schools, they pretend that they're poor, right? Yeah. They, they deliberately act like they're poor. And it's like fascinating because they're completely trying to disassociate themselves from the wealth um, and the privilege that they're born into, but that they don't really have anything interesting. Let me read. Yeah. Let me read the definition of bourgeoisie. Yeah. So we can. No, I mean, this guy doesn't directly use Marxist terms, but yeah, it does seem like that's sort of the root of it. But the bourgeoisie is a social class equivalent to the middle or upper class. They are distinguished from and traditionally contrasted with the proletariat, which would be the working class, by their affluence and their great cultural and financial capital. Okay, so that's like just the basics of it. See, I don't, I don't, I don't like that definition of elite, right? Because if you honestly only measure people who are elite based upon like how much wealth they have in their bank account, it really doesn't pose the question of what kind of impact that person has on society, or what value or contribution do they have to society. Well, but I, I mean, in thinking Marxist thinking. The elite is extracting value from society, extracting from the working class, yeah, material from the proletariat, value. and from the commons. Correct, correct. He's robbing the earth and the poor to increase his capital. Yeah, except in in a Marxist thought. I mean, that's I'm yeah. sure I'm sure that's like yeah. a very simplified version of it, but yeah, 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 yeah. But it, I, I'm I was going to just bring it to attention like. The, the irony behind you know that and like Marxism and that Marxists will um, propose this big brother government that also extracts and you know accumulates and expands endlessly um, and puts well, people on ration food and whatever. No, I mean I would like to say how much of capital markets are driven by private investment, or I guess not driven by private investment, but how many private people really own that much capital? I think we live in a a system of basically <clears throat> corporations where, right. and even like the people that you would maybe define as a lower class, like they still own lots of shares in the largest companies, <laughs> you know, sure. like we, like most people own a little bit of stake in some sort of a corporation. Most people have some sort of like capital. Right. Right. So They're, then like, mm -hmm. It just, it just becomes very difficult, I would think, to draw a line between who is the worker and yeah. who is not, who yeah. is elite. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's like kind of that kind of paradigm of looking at it through a materialistic kind of frame. I, I personally try to stay away from that because, like you kind of mentioned, it creates a cynical attitude towards the rich. It, it develops cynicism and like in the poor. Um you know, I recognize as someone of being elite status, as someone who has value in my eyes, um, as someone who, who's driven to change or make the world a better place, right? So you can have like, yeah. you know, a priest or a father or whatever who may not have much, right? He just kind of like walks around in his robes, but um, he has a genuine concern for the poor and the people around him that he eventually ascends to a level of like elite status, right? And eventually that's kind of what happens when someone like, like I don't know, the Catholic Church like saints somebody or whatever, because they've done something great for the people around them or whatever. Um, and 
you know, I think likewise, I mean, a, a professor or someone who maybe not like he's making a ton of money off of the university or whatever, um, he has some very valuable contributions. Like how much, how much money did Albert Einstein die with, right? Like how rich was that man, you know, but his contribution is incredible, right, to, to humanity and society. I don't know. Yeah, that's just my my perspective. I know that kind of drifts away from the conversation that the, the book is trying to take us into, but mm-hmm. I, I personally never never entertained myself too long in that conversation. I, I personally don't feel very interested in that conversation, which right. may be a bad thing as well because I think it is important to talk about economy and you know these financial systems and the flow of cash and all that. But yeah, I think. I think that it was something that was more applicable in the time that it was written. Right. And that, yeah, I think things have changed a little bit. Now I think we can always improve people's conditions and hopefully we will. Mm-hmm. Um, like here's, yeah, citizen efficacy rooted in a person's ability to provide for themselves or dependents. Mm-hmm. So I think as long as we're always trying to build systems that, provide people with a means of bettering themselves um we're always going to kind of end up in a better place yeah now i mean i think everybody can always look at someone that's a little bit higher than them on the ladder and think like man i wish i had that or something but i don't know (laughs) i mean what at what point in time does that become um like a justified at what point, like where do you draw the line, I guess, between almost like greed or jealousy or something like that, or maybe not even something with that negative of a connotation versus like a justifiable demand that like your basic needs are met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't want to be brash and just kind of, you know, whip up a, a quick idea of what I think about it. I think an idea, a question like that needs some time to just kind of simmer um, and think yeah. about. But I think you're right. It, it can't just be about, like, greed and just chasing down chasing down a dollar. Um, and I think it, it cuts both ways. It cuts... <laughs> Like that question can cut to the upper, it can cut at any level of class, however you define class. Yeah. Um, all right, let's just jump ahead to this final challenge of majoritarianism. Bring it home. So most, most modern political majorities are coalition-based as few societies are homogenous. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Mm-hmm. Majoritarianism proclaims the unity of a given people based on an ethnocultural identity. Um, I don't know on that one that I would wholeheartedly co-sign that. Well, I I heard an interesting um, uh, a speech by JFK. It was talking about like how he was criticizing secret societies and how a lot of secret societies like run our society, like run our, run our country and run our government. Um, and that maybe even if you did have a ethno-cultural majority identity that is unified, 
um, there are kinds of those those little pockets of people who are kind of pulling the strings and um, kind of moving the crowd in the direction that they want. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just think that, that that would contend with this idea that. Well, yeah. I guess that's maybe that is one of the major problems with this book or one of the difficulties I have with this book is this book makes sense if you're taking it like if you're taking everything head on and literally and you have complete you have complete belief in in systems and that people have I guess the ability to write this ship and that you don't have any I don't know powerful without being like conspiratorial but like kind of like you're saying you don't have outside influences I guess and I just don't think you're ever gonna there's never gonna be a society without powerful influences that have an impact on your democracy I don't necessarily think that that's wrong or evil or something but i think it's just like an x factor that's not necessarily counted on or not necessarily like thrown into the equation of this degeneration of democracy book yeah I, and it, it sounds like you know this book is trying to like whip up support for people to like really believe in democracies and get involved in democracy i think that's kind of the agenda behind this book um is to renew people's faith in democracy but it's really funny because we were just talking about elites versus non-elites right and now they're talking about like the problem of majoritarianism, right? Talking about like this bulk of people who I'm assuming they're all portraying as being like non-elites without recognizing yeah. that there are elites embedded in that majority. There are elites outside of that majority who also have control and influence and power and money and all that jazz. Um, so I, I think they're creating all these like little micro models. Like they're kind of like yeah. isolating, they're isolating the problem. And, Absolutely. Um, I, I agree with you. I think that, that there's definitely problems with that kind of framing. Yeah, it's very hard. These are such complex systems that it's so hard to talk about them without um, being hypocritical or like contradicting yourself in some way. Like you can see, like as we're hitting these points, they're like popularism bad, but <laughs> we need popular vote, but not majoritarianism. Like, I don't know. They don't do a very good job of defining. Like if this is an equation or something, they don't define what their variables are when they start throwing some of these words around mm -hmm. and they don't necessarily define what the system is. Like they don't put like system boundaries down where you can necessarily draw a conclusion on what they're trying to say. Yeah. Maybe that's my engineer mind, but <laughs> No, that was a very engineered, like, you know, response. Um, and it's very interesting because I was talking with a group of students who were admitted into um, the landscape architecture program um, yesterday. Um, and I was talking about my engineering background and stepping into architecture is there aren't like right and wrong answers in, in like the architecture school. Like to a certain degree there is, right? You still have to show up with something that looks of quality and substance. Um, but your, your training is constantly about reading, writing, seeing what inspires you, incorporating that information, 
um, synthesizing it, um, being part of discussions, presenting your, your content. Um, and that doesn't happen in engineering. Like rarely do we stand up and present, you know, our answer to a math problem that we solved, right? There is some presentation when we do like scientific, you know, method level work or we're designing a product. Um, but there isn't like this like conversation and dialogue about other things that are happening in our society about like engineering and technology. Um, so I, I, I think likewise, it, it really seems like they're pushing out this, you know, very engineered uh, uh, package of, of work, right? And I, 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 think it, I think they need to be a little bit more open in, in terms of like the dialogue and the conversation without having like hard and fixed rules about this is what a democracy is, was, and should be, um, kind of making it a little bit more open-ended, um, I, I think is might be more productive. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. I think if you could boil down the whole book, what would you boil it down to? Basically, that democracy is good, but needs reclaimed, and it can be reclaimed by more people having a more direct relationship to politics is, I mean, would that be close? I'm not sure if I can boil down this book. I could say maybe why I've, I've benefited from reading this book. I think by consensus, like global consensus, I think everyone is for democracy, right? With isolated examples of different parts of the world, which are against democracy. I think overwhelmingly yeah. our, our world globally is pro-democratic. Um, I would say what this book offers a value, right? And I, I'm against Kool-Aid drinking. I, I don't think you have to believe and follow everything these authors say. But I do think they provide some good ways to contextualize some of the tools or some parts of our systems that we were maybe taught in school, right? So mm -hmm. understanding how those tools work, understanding like how our world is responding to them, I, I think is a very important, productive conversation to have. Um, I think they're proposing theories but um those things are i think up for people to have a conversation and decide about um i think to a certain degree i felt like this book kind of you know re-excited me about not necessarily just democracy but about like feeling passionate about solving human problems right and i think yeah. that's a good feeling to have you, you everyone should have that feeling um whether or not they agree with the authors, they should. We need to get out of this, and I think especially for our generation, we have to stop being apathetic, right? It's like, well, that's someone else's problem. That's the police officer's mm -hmm. problem. That's someone else's problem. Um, rather saying that we need to increase ourselves in empathy and care for other people. Um, I think that's yeah, a good, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a yeah, big, that'd be a good takeaway. Yeah, um, it's definitely brought up a lot of interesting points. I mean, I only made it like three quarters of the way through, and we've done like seven podcasts or something or yeah. six or seven. Like <laughs> it's crazy. And I feel like we just scratched it. Like we we just like kind of heard oh, yeah. through some parts, glossed over. You know, there's like a there's a lot of like really interesting content that you could have we could have dug into and that we did. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm sure the authors wherever they are are gonna be really happy that there's some two guys from the Midwest, you know <laughs> <Shout out seven. laughs> you know. Yeah we can have them on. You know, it, it's not too far. What if send them an email? Right. I mean, like Tom, like, hey, we did a seven-part podcast about your book, and you know, we uh, would love to, you know, 
tickle some tickle some toes. You come on here and torch us. Tell us uh, yeah what all we got wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or maybe they don't show up and they're just like, <laughs> we don't care. Um, these are problems for the for the non elites to figure out. We're we're the elites, so we're just gonna we are the elites at yeah. the university. Yeah, <laughs> university elites. What the, yeah, so that's kind of an interesting thing too, right? Is that a lot of this. A lot of these talking points are being pushed down from, from like above. very highly educated, wealthy people to what they are like sort of self-defining as the non-elites. That's where I, I always find it such a strange thing to like. Yeah. It's like this really hard like line to toe of, you know, like most people care for people and want people to do better, but how do you do that in a respectful, like a very respectful and empathetic way without like telling them like, like, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of come from a place. Like I know like what you should do to be better. Like we need to fix society so you can be better because it almost like kind of takes away the agency of they can improve them on their own. Right. Oh, that's, that's, that's a whole nother seven part podcast that you can (laughs) (laughs) turn around and make, but, yeah, um, it's yeah. It's like there's like this priestly cast of academics who are telling us, you know, how do we make our situation better, rather than you know, is it possible for just a group of friends or family can come together and start thinking about how can we build a better future for ourselves? Yeah. Um, well, let's leave it there. How do we build a better future for ourselves? That's true. I guess that's ultimately what it boils down to. Um, but yeah, let's stick a pin in this book. We'll call it done for now. <laughs> Hopefully there's no more. Maybe there'll be another Degen of Demo podcast that'll rise. But, um, and well, I'd be interested in doing yeah. this with another book. So yeah, we can anybody definitely. has recommendations. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I, I, I want to say first, Clay, like, Thank you for leading this and, um, you know, scheduling these uh, podcast things. It's um, truly awesome to kind of take a book from start to finish. And, um, it you know, you learn a lot in a conversation and a dialogue that um, if you're siloed off and you just read it yourself, that you'll just walk away with your own opinions and your own attitude. So, um, you know, kudos to you and thank you for creating this platform um, and hosting this kind of content. Yeah, man. Thanks for the recommendation to read this. I was glad we could do it. All right. Until next time.